0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: One of my techs had like a level three engineer at their desk and they were saying, oh, we need to do this, but we're going to need to get permission from Doug or another manager and make sure it's okay. And the tech looked at him and said, no, we don't. And I was sitting at my desk with my head down working, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, they get it, they get it.
0: (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what happens when teams first taste freedom, the difference between self-management in theory and self-management in action. But before we unpack that, let's see if we can manage a check-in round.
1: You might need approval. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Uh. I (laughs) will fill out my forms in triplicate.
1: So we'll start this episode with this check-in round question. Aaron, you go first. When were you given the authority to do something that totally flipped you out?
0: I think the experience that comes to mind for me first is I was working with a really, really large company, um, not early in my career, but early enough, and we were working on remaking the values for the entire company. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like there were five of us or so working on this that would ultimately affect three hundred thousand people. And it felt like, really? <laughs> like we're 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 gonna do this. And uh, yeah, so that I don't, that felt like a great responsibility and a little bit insane and a little bit exciting. But uh, it was a good experience.
1: Nice. I have a lot I could think of from work, but the personal example that I feel is deeply imprinted in my psyche is when I moved to New York City, which was uh, very, very soon after I graduated from college. So I commuted for a couple of months and then I got a studio apartment. Uh, I did not want to have any more roommates ever. And I remember (laughs) my mom helped me move in and I remember her driving away in the U-Haul and I'm standing on 81st street with my keys in my hand and just being like, wait, like I, like I live alone in a large city now. Like that, that does not seem right to me. And being sort of elated, but also sort of horrified that yes. I had made all of these decisions that had led to this moment that I was completely unprepared for.
0: I like it. All right. So we were both freaked out uh, at home and at work. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So today's topic is going to be related to that feeling. Uh, The early days of moving from strict hierarchy to self-management or self-organization or a more kind of empowered working environment. And I would like to start by asking you to just describe this scenario, because you see it so often in the work out there in the world. What exactly happens when leaders finally say, yeah, we're going to take the reins off.
1: Uh, It's really exciting, but the scenario unfolds thusly. We do a bunch of priming and a bunch of thinking and a bunch of consideration of options. And then often some leader steps up and says, I'm ready to really have some number of teams go full self-management and move away from the traditional structures that we have in place. And whether it be through Skunk Works or that leader's protection, we're going to have a different kind of team resident inside of an organization that looks nothing like that team. And that's really exciting for a minute. And then, much like my experience on 81st Street, the magnitude and weight and realization (laughs) of changing basically every field of your OS in a fairly short period of time in ways that most people haven't actually experienced before feels pretty heavy and pretty overwhelming.
0: Yeah, we're doing what now? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think all the questions that come up once you're really doing it are so practical and so real and feel like they have high consequence. When you're just considering it, it's like, oh, yeah, freedom sounds great. I've always wanted to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. That's Let's do it. And then when you're actually sitting there on Monday morning, and it's like, great. What's your priority? What are you going to work on first? What are you going to say yes and no to? What roles are you going to hold? There is a big kind of, you know, eyes like saucers moment that occurs. Yeah,
1: and... There's both the freedom of that, which is scary, and then also the amount of work, which is scary. So you have the experience a lot with teams where they're like, yeah, 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 let's go do that. That sounds rad. And then it's like, okay, but now no shit. We have to sit down and define your roles and like your decision rights and how you're going to meet and incentivize all of that stuff. And then they're like, oh, wait, this has always just been handed to me. Now I have to like, think about it and write it down. And we have to agree that what I, that's hard. I wasn't expecting to have yeah, to do that. Yeah, it does that. feel like a lot of work. It is a, it lot, is a lot of work.
0: Because <laughs> the funny thing about disrupting normal leadership patterns is that a lot of the work that we call quote unquote management still happens. Right, it course. just happens in a more distributed way. Yeah. So it's not like we're getting rid of a lot of stuff. There might be some nonsense behavior that we get rid of. But, you know, determining who's doing what and where and what are the priorities and what's happening, that still has to happen. And it just ha- happens in a different way. And that does feel like... Well, i didn't have to do this before and and you know is that a trade that i'm glad I made how will I know Et cetera. yeah
1: so for the purposes of this discussion should we call these teams slam teams
0: I think we can that's that's definitely an acronym that i've liked just because it puts a little bit more meat on the bone and it also um brings some other good habits into the team design right out of the gate so this is this is an acronym that came up in in a prior part of my career, where we were trying to articulate what is different about these teams from a more standard hierarchical group. And uh, the S stands for self-organized or self-managed. You can kind of pick your uh, descriptor of choice. The L stands for lean, because one of the other habits we've been trying to break is overly sized teams and committees, right? We don't need 15 people on the team. So it's a self-managed team. It's a lean team, which means Usually we say seven plus or minus two people, um, although you could do minus more than that, I guess, if you want to, um, before you start to compromise on diversity of perspectives. Uh, The A um, used to, in the very origins of this acronym, stand for autonomous, and then we felt like the distinction between that and self-managed was not helpful. So the A now stands for audacious, because we actually want teams to set uh, purposes and goals that are um, aspirational and that motivate them and that feel worth doing and that feel like they will actually change the organization. One of the things we noticed in the early days of, of deploying self-management is if you only give the teams kind of banal work to do, when they're successful, the teams doing the really important work will say, well, that's great that it worked for you know that, but it will never work for the high stakes stuff that we're doing. So we throw the audacious in the mix because we want to do the high stakes stuff right out of the gate. Just give us Give us your most important project and we'll give it back to you done on time or early with happier people and happier customers kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the M is multidisciplinary or multifunctional, which is basically how do we get all the right skills on the team so that they can just do the work and ship the work without having to deal with all the silos and bulkheads and, you know, political management that has to go on in a regular system. So we have a self-managed, lean, audacious and multidisciplinary team.
1: One distinction I want to make before we go any further <laughs> is that this is not a tiger team. Yes. This is not a project team. This is not side of desk work. A lot of times we talk to people and they're like, we well, right, right we'll, we'll get a tiger team together. But a tiger team implies that you have your day-to-day role and then you have this extracurricular activity that is multidisciplinary, usually, that's happening outside of the context of all of those disciplines, regular day-to-day work. This is not that. Like you are moving right, into a team right. and that team is the day-to-day.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I think it is it is possible to be on more than one slam team, uh, which, sure. which would be, you know, a partial attention thing. But I think the best way to practice and the best way to start is one team, one mission, you know, trying this format and and learning how to master it, frankly, before you start to juggle.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about the main differences between a traditional team and a SLAM team. What's the first thing that comes to mind for you?
0: So I think that uh, ironically, a traditional team often has a lot of oversight and management and involvement. and. Sometimes not a great deal of clarity about what they're actually supposed to be doing at a at a purpose level. I think a, a slam team has a high degree of clarity about their purpose and their intent because usually they've been chartered by either themselves or other people in the organization to say, go achieve this outcome. Um, and that's very clear, but they have almost no oversight or intervention or toll gates or bullshit to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's yeah it's you have like greater clarity of purpose, way less intervention and and uh, interruption in a in a slam team environment, you know, on average.
1: Yeah, the other piece that feels very different to me is that in a more traditional system, we expect teams to be pretty static, right? Right. And so we tend to organize work around the hierarchy that we've created. In Mm -hmm. a slam team, what we're trying to do is organize the humans around the work or the purpose that we're trying to accomplish. And that might seem like a small difference, but what it means in practice is that slam teams have an expectation that they are going to continually change. And so a lot of the principles of self-management show up in these teams because they expect to be learning and steering and adding and shedding members and rethinking roles and governing different kinds of policies. as the world changes, as their work changes, as they uh, fulfill a purpose and then take on a new one. So I think there's just a mindset shift from the very beginning. That's not like we're going to compose this team of the right people to do the right work right off the bat. And it's more like we're going to pick a piece of work, make our best guess and learn our way through this mess.
0: What I love about what you just said is that it highlights this idea that the team's makeup can change over time. And I had a Big conversation with one of the organizations we're working with today about handoffs and how often they go wrong because you know one silo tries to hand to the other one and they're like we don't want to do that or that's not <laughs> our priority or what Hard have pass. you yeah. and what's amazing is it makes me think of that old uh philosophy problem of like if you take a boat and you take one piece of wood off and replace it and then another one and then replace it when is it not the original boat right mm-hmm. and and when does it become something else and and the same thing with your body right like you shed cells all the time and yet you're still you And what I love about slam teams is, of course, work is gonna grow and change as it moves from conception and creation to development and deployment. You're gonna need different skills, you're gonna be doing different activities. So instead of having to go from silo to silo and having these complete handoff moments, if the team just literally evolves naturally, like one person leaves, another one joins, then there's this neat uh, fluidity of like, the identity of the team and the work stays constant Mm -hmm. and powerful and potent. And you get all this interesting efficiency in terms of people then shedding and adding according to their skills and interests. So you actually get the most out of all the members while you also get the most kind of consistent identity around the work. And I think when you have a whole group doing this, that's a really cool kind of uh, ecology that develops.
1: Yeah. And as teams start to make moves toward being a slam team, there are a lot of perceived obstacles in traditional organizations that are kind of bullshit. So what you see happen a lot of times, like in the handoffs conversation is, okay, let's say that like, I'm on one team and you're on another team and my job is to provide some kind of service to you as an internal client and you are my only internal client, but my boss and your boss are two different people. What we see when we start trying to move into a slam team is like, well, Rodney and Aaron cannot be on the same self-managed team because of reporting lines and because of this structure, which is just like- Where does that team report? That is- fucking arbitrary. Because if you look at the rest of the OS, I'm like, you and I can be in that scenario behaving as if we are a slam team, even if no one changes the reporting structure.
0: And that's why also the the distinction between kind of leading a chapter or a function or a practice area is so different from leading a PL or a product or a project. Mm-hmm. Because the PL, the product or the project, you want that alignment, you want that connection, you want those different disciplines coming together because you're making a thing. Mm-hmm. Someone who's like a functional leader or a practice area leader or what we like to call a chapter leader. Their job is just to make sure that that community is convening and evolving and growing and sharing its insights and its learning with each other. It's You're a community of practice there, but you're not actually making anything. Yeah. And what's unfortunate is most of the hierarchies we work in are organized the exact opposite way, right? Like you work in IT, so you report to the head of IT and that's your allegiance and that's the castle that you go to sleep in. And then we happen to make software. Yeah. You know, or we happen to make products that other groups have to touch and shape for it to get out the door. So with all that being said, what I am curious about and where we started with the premise of the show is the first bit is so hard. So I think we had to do a lot of this setup to make it clear what it is that we're talking about when we say moving to self-management or to a slam team environment. But now let's peel back to what are those first moments like? What are the first moves? What have you seen work or not work? What behaviors have you seen? Like kind of describe why this is an interesting uh, place to play.
1: There are several moves that can go first, and I haven't yet decided which I think is the best thing to start with, and it probably depends on the team. I certainly think that understanding a purpose or an outcome or a mission or an experiment that the team is going to organize around is super important. And Assuming that we have that, someone, whether that is a person who's going to steward that team or currently holds a formal leadership position, needs to make their best guess at team composition just so we can get started. Mm -hmm. From there, I like to just get in a room with those people, make sure we've all fully grokked the reason that we are a team and what the work is that has bound us to one another. And then I usually go one of three routes. One is If we are coming from various organizations that previously fucking hated each other, I love doing a user manual to me before we do anything else. Because it's like...
0: Maybe some sage clearing. Yeah,
1: we burn sage, we sacrifice a baby goat, and then we do a user manual to me. Just the last one, actually. But uh, I've had that scenario where because our silos were tribal and didn't think much of each other. The first time we pull people into that room, it's a little bit like guns out. So doing work at the very beginning to humanize ourselves can be a helpful step. Even though most people are impatient about spending the time on that, I think that there's a lot of benefit. The second thing you can do first is have that group of people retrospect how things have been working with relation to Teaming, that specific purpose, their lives in the company in general, just starting to get some sense and some patterns uh, that that group can coalesce around can be really useful. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is team chartering. It's where, you know, we probably know what the purpose is, but right from there, we're going to go to what are the top three to five things this team is going to contribute in service of that purpose. And then we can get into role clarity and decision rights and steering metrics and all of the other things attendant in a team charter. Um, that to me is really where a big shift happens because people start to go like, Oh shit, like, No one's going to just tell me this is the job description, and then I'm going to put it in a drawer and ignore it. This is where we're going to be in a living document that our group is responsible for creating and then also living into and then also continually iterating over time.
0: Right, 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 right. And what I love about the team chartering process is that if people are forming around a piece of work, then the start of that charter has been done, which is Mm -hmm. either a set of leaders or a set of players in a more um, uh, egalitarian system have, have... articulated something that we want to go do. People are then drawn to that or recruited to that or assigned to that. And then they have to finish the charter, which is like, okay, now we know what it is and generally why we're doing it and whatnot. We know whatever constraints are in place. But now to your point, we have to clarify like what roles will we each play? What how will we make decisions? How will we, you know, ship the work? What will we share? What will we not share? You know, when will we meet? All those questions come to bear. And I guess what I'm wondering and what I think is at the heart of this Um, episode is what's hard about that is do you find that when you do it that way and you facilitate that chartering that actually it's not that hard to step into this stuff or that it still is for people and what do they get hung up on
1: the hardest part is between when we make the decision that we're going to do this thing and getting our team charter finished because there's the moment where people both realize like oh shit this is actually a lot of work that i've never had to do before in terms of ways of working and even thinking about how we work and making choices around it. And two is, it's a little bit of like, we were handed the keys, but we're not sure if it's safe to drive. (laughs) And I had this conversation with someone this week, where they were like, you know, very very charged energetically about the chaos that has ensued since this decision was made and since this announcement was made and like everyone is freaking out and on and on and on and on. And I was like, okay, hold up. I I see you and I appreciate that those are real feelings for you and nothing has actually happened yet. Second of all, you all said that you didn't want the leader to go into a dark room and write an org chart and come and do a big reveal and tell you all where to go on Monday.
0: Right. This right. is what
1: that feels like. So, like, welcome. And 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 now when we say we don't have all the answers and we're going to figure this out collectively as we go, which is what you wish for, now you're really scared. And I get that, but the reality is like you can't have it both ways. You can't right, like right, be yeah. controlled by someone and also have that level of autonomy at the same time. And so if you are given the opportunity to move into working in this new way, which most people philosophically are pretty jazzed about, then you also have to have the self-control and the self-awareness to understand like, yeah, now I have feels about that and the feels are part of it. And that doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong.
0: Comfort with ambiguity is a skill we all talk about, it's a thing that you hear, I think it's very different to live it than it is to read a LinkedIn post about it. And the kind of ambiguity we're talking about is like, what's going to happen? Who's going to do what? Where will we all end up? Will this work or not? There's a lot of that in in this work. And it, it reminds me of that moment in, you know, 8 million movies where they try to release the animal <laughs> into the wild and the cage door opens and the animal takes 10 steps and then it turns back and it's like, uh, uh-huh. I think I just want to go back to where everything is, you know, feels safe. And, and we all feel that every time we change something, even at the ready, when we change from whatever the norm is to the other thing, there's a moment of like, "Uh, I'm not so sure. And and I think over time, you just get more comfortable with that feeling. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's that feeling that happens when I do stuff that's going to help us learn. And then you kind of proceed and live with that feeling until it goes away. And usually by the time it goes away, you've actually achieved an improvement to the system, to yourself, or both.
1: Yeah, that's right. And in reality, a lot of the things that seem like big changes in the moment over time don't actually feel nearly as monumental. So we have to do our own work to notice the discomfort and then parse what's real and what is our imaginings. So one of the people that I worked with at a former client did this very well. He was just super thoughtful about how to move inside of a very traditional system into self-managing teams and what it meant as a leader to carve out the space to do that. And that person is a guy named Doug Seacrest who works at Bloomin' Brands. He leads all of technology support there. I think it'd be really cool to just pick Doug's brain about how all of this went down for him. So when we get back, after this break, we will be joined by Doug Sechrist.
0: I will get a Bloomin' Onion ready, and here we go. <laughs> hey, everybody. We're back with Doug Sechrist from Bloomin' Brands, the company behind Outback Steakhouse, Carrabba's, Fleming's, the Bloomin' Onion. You know what I'm talking about. Um, Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So, Doug, we worked together a while back to get us oriented. Maybe just tell us a little bit about Bloomin' and about your role there.
2: Okay. Well, uh, Bloomin' Brands, as already said, um, kind of the parent company. We call ourselves the Restaurant Support Center now uh, for all of our brands uh, that we support throughout the country and uh, across the world to some extent. Uh, my role is that of manager of our IT support help desk, uh, helping all of our restaurants make sure they're functioning, all of our users, as well as everybody um, within our home office uh, as they support the restaurants.
0: Got it. So we have worked together and we've kind of, you know, been on a bit of a journey, and I think to start us off, what we'd like to explore is just why did you decide to move your teams into a new way of working in the direction of self-management? Like, what inspired you to do that? How did that coincide or not coincide with with our arrival? And and what was your thinking there? So I'd say
2: the journey uh, to change the way we were working probably started about four years ago. Uh, we were facing you know tougher challenges, more technology in the restaurant. We needed to get resolutions faster, we need to do a, You know, do our work better, um, and we just weren't seeing the satisfaction results from the restaurants that we needed. So mm-hmm. we began the journey trying different things, uh, but so much of the time we spent, you know, weeks and months and months trying to plan everything out of the decisions, <laughs> and it, it just doesn't work. <laughs> you can't do it. Uh, uh, our organization began in IT, uh, with Agile, and at first I was like, Agile doesn't apply to me, we don't do projects, we don't mm-hmm. do scrum teams and all this stuff that everyone kept teaching us that Agile was. But then we had conversations uh, with Rodney and the team and it's like, but wait a minute, there's more to it than just how you do your meeting and having a scrum team and and sprints and all this stuff, There's it's it's the mindset, it's the people that really make the difference. And so we started the journey, we started the conversation. We were not one of the teams kind of on the books uh, to be part of the transformation. But we're like, hey, Rodney, we want some of this, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So we started having conversations and we started talking about it. Um, But the biggest push was we knew that we couldn't continue improving in the way we were designed currently. We Uh had to change in order to get better and keep pushing for higher levels of excellence.
1: That's one of the reasons that I was really excited and inspired to work with you guys, even though we weren't expressly meant to be working together. I see a lot of leaders who have that point of frustration where they're trying to get more out of the same ways of doing things and more out of their resources. And like, there's no more efficiency to be squeezed there, but they just keep squeezing. And they're like, why can't we meet this metric? Why can't we get this? And they're not willing to consider a completely different way of doing things or like a counterintuitive way of doing things. So that was one of the things that was really interesting was like, I felt like you and Debbie were very much like yeah, like this intuitively resonates, let's give it a shot. Do you think that besides just your frustration with, you know, how how things were going, was there anything else that like made you open to that? Because I feel like you guys were really willing to play from the very beginning.
2: We do something had to change. I think the other parts of it came along when the team from the ready that was with us began really talking about, the self-empowerment and self-leadership and organizing of the teams, and it just makes sense, especially when you're doing something as close contact as support. You know, the 20 minutes it takes to get a yes, you can do that, your customer satisfaction is just screaming down that whole time because people are like, I just want my restaurant to run. I don't care who has to say yes.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. I never thought about the time frame orientation of what you do, but it's true. And support in most industries, that's a second to second, minute to minute, you know, satisfaction curve. Like I, I need to know what's going on with my food right now. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Doug, we talked a lot and you've since kind of kept me posted on the metrics thing, because in a support organization, so much is metrics oriented and metrics driven. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you saw when you started to transform to a more self-managed system and what's happened since then?
2: Sure. Uh, so I'd say kind of the industry standard metrics that we look at would be our percent of calls answered and our speed to answer. That's kind of the big ones for call centers. Mm-hmm. Um Four years ago, you know, a 70% answer rate at a minute and 30 seconds, we were like, hey, you know what, we're doing really good. And then we got the challenge to do better. And Mm. so, you know, through our own improvements, we got ourselves to around 80, 85%. And then when we started our transformation, we were at 85, 90, but the team was burning out. We were burning out. I mean, it's just like blood, sweat and tears forcing it to happen and mm-hmm. it's like, we just can't keep doing this to ourselves or our people. And so that's when we changed. Um, in the last year, which we started our transformation in October of 2018. Um, so, in the last full year of what we would call being transformed, it's still happening. Um, currently, we're hitting 95 to 99% answer rates Damn. at 15 seconds, 20 seconds speed to answer. <laughs> wow. I mean, it has been amazing. <laughs> that is insane. And I'll also point out that's with a reduction in headcount. Wow. wow. So yeah team has been amazing. They have they have responded they have picked it up they have run like crazy and they love it
1: <laughs> And I remember early days that the metrics dipped and you were very wisely I thought like yeah, that's gonna happen because learning. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did that go? Like in such a metrics oriented place when you were like watching the numbers fall?
2: Yeah, we, um, from October to December, we watched the numbers plummet. And I mean, we, we got down to 80% answer rates, 85% answer rates when our goals was 90, 95. And Debbie and I, uh, Debbie Meltzer, my fellow manager and I had to kind of get broad shoulders and push back on our boss and her boss and be like, this is going to happen. Yeah. Change is messy. Mm -hmm. Except the fact that it's going to happen this way, but it's going to get better. And we just had to keep saying it's going to get better. And everyone's like, well, what if it doesn't? It's like, it's going to get better. (laughs) You know, (laughs) know, exactly. And then those famous words, because I love your book, the famous words. Well, what's the plan? There's not one. There's not a plan. We're we're on a course, not a plan here. You know,
0: it's just one day
2: at a time and that's it. That's all there is to it. (laughs)
0: So that's amazing. So speaking of broad shoulders, when you look back, you know, 2018 fall to now, what has changed about your leadership style and your role in general? Like, what are you doing now that you weren't doing then? What have you stopped? What just what's the shift that you've noticed?
2: Uh, The shift has been big. Uh, We used to traditional call center, we would assign the work, we would shift it out to everybody and you're going to do this, you're going to do this. Um, We have moved to such different format. Now it's here's the work to be done who wants to do it. Um, we use what's called Bloomin' Bucks, which is a form of currency that you can redeem for you know, snacks and chips and energy drinks, because that's what tech people run on, uh, <laughs> but also <laughs> uh, dinners with like the CIO or lunch with, with uh, the director of support. you know. So there's a lot of things they can do. So a lot of the stuff that we hand out as projects, it's like, here's this project and how much currency it's worth to go do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that encourages the pull of the work. And so we transform from assigning work to kind of that reminder, hey, this is still out here. It needs to be done. Hey, watch your cue. It's, it's uh, backing up a little bit. Um, and then also changing to kind of clearing the roadblocks and mm-hmm. saying, okay, what do you need from me in order to do that?
1: Right. Right. And I would imagine because you work inside of an organ, a larger organization that is not self-managing, that you have some role there. I mean, I saw you play that role occasionally of like holding that space so that your teams can continue to figure stuff out themselves.
2: Absolutely. We um, definitely work with a lot of different groups within the larger of IT as well as the company in general. And so we've really kind of change thing to where our techs can say I need this or this needs to go out here or we've assigned it correctly but I need a little help because it's mm-hmm. a special situation and so we've really been able to take a step back and only get involved when they need us to get involved and that's been the hard part is not getting involved until we're asked
1: <laughs> it is a hard part isn't it yeah I, I see leaders struggle with that a lot but like, it's also uh, so fun and fulfilling, isn't it? When you see people having really great ideas and doing really great work.
2: <laughs> oh, it, to- it totally is. I, I remember one story I was thinking about, um, you know, watching the progression of the team. Uh, one of my techs had a like a level three engineer at their desk and they were saying, oh, well, we need to do this. But before you can do that, we're going to need to get permission from from Doug or, or another manager and make sure it's okay and you mm. know, triplicate and all this. And the tech looked at him and said, No, we don't. <laughs> and the engineer was like, Yeah, you do. And he's like, No, this is in my decision, right? I'm allowed to do this, so we don't need to stop. Let's just go do it. Awesome. You know, so, so. and I was sitting at my desk with my head down working, and I'm like, Yeah, yeah, they get it. They get it. <laughs>
0: It is funny how you have those like (laughs) secret kind of fist pumps that happen when you're doing this work where you're overhearing something. You're not going to like make a big show of it. But you're just like, yes. Exactly. It was
2: was that moment of they got it. Yes.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Are there there other um, kind of moments or even like innovations or ideas that have come out of the team that have led to that 95 percent or 99 percent? Um, answer rate like what are what are some of those things people have figured out that have optimized the, the system
2: the team has figured out because uh, we went from a structured service desk tier one tier 2 format to pods of uh, people that represent that cross section of all of support so each pod has members from each level. And so they've really run with the idea that if a call or email or whatever comes into their group, it stays in their group unless Mm -hmm. they can't resolve it. And then it goes to um, another team outside of support. But something we didn't think about and has really come up is kind of, the team's almost built its own exchange of work. So they'll Mm. talk and say, well, you have someone in your, your team that's really good at this. Can you take that incident and work it? Because you'll do it three times as fast as we will. And by the same token, another team will say, well, you've got so-and-so that can do this really good. Can you do that for us? And like this whole almost market of exchanging work has come up, you know, we're doing two, 300 tickets a day and they're just switching it back and forth. So we've gotten faster because they share work to the people that can do it the best, but also spend those moments teaching so that they get better at it.
1: And one of the things I remember from early on uh, was as you started with the Alpha team in the first pod, I remember there was some discussion among the team of who was going to be on that first team. And obviously, everybody wants like the all-stars to be, so we stack <laughs> the deck so that the first one goes really well. But there was like also an interesting shift in those pod conversations from anyone who was underperforming being Doug and Debbie's problem, like you guys right. as managers go deal with, to like, oh, now like if they're in my pod, they are our problem. It's my problem. (laughs) And like, you know, we either then have to train them or we have to deal with it. Have you continued to see that kind of thing as you've become like a fully sort of self-managed pod marketplace?
2: Absolutely. In fact, it's probably gotten stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to, when we would bring new people in, um, we really follow a model of one-on-one mentoring and training versus trying to do classrooms where people mm-hmm. fall asleep. And, you know, <laughs> they just don't retain the information because they're totally. not touching it. Yeah. So um, we've really transformed that. Used to, they would just work with designated people that trained. Now they come in the door almost assigned to a pod. So like, this is my person and their success is in my hands. Mm-hmm. And so that follows them. They work other shifts to get in, inside of other pods because our pods are kind of based on schedules and times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they work the other ones to get the experience, but they have a pod they belong to and they kind of own them. And they're like, your success is in our hands and we're going to decide when you're ready to take the next step or learn something new. And they kind of feed them along with you know what they need to be learning, but making sure that you know they're learning and progressing, and they will have conversations with us when they feel like someone's not doing as well as they could or need mm-hmm. some extra help, and we'll engage our uh, our team leads that can help you know do some of that work with them as well. So yeah, it's been they're 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 owning it because at the end of the day, their goals and reviews are based on their teams performance and right. the
0: team's success so they're heavily invested. Yeah. That makes sense. And you are obviously living proof that this works in a in a call center or a support environment, but for people listening who might be in that same space and are thinking I just don't see how this would work in a support environment, what would your argument be or what have you noticed that sort of speaks specifically to this function and how it's possible?
2: I would say it absolutely can work. You have to look at how your people work, how they fit in. You know, pods might not be the answer for you. It might be something else. Um, honestly, we've changed from what we originally started. It's changed over the, over the year and a half that we've been doing this. Of course. Um, and, and so it's, it's not going to stay the same. Um, I guess the biggest piece of advice I would give is listen to your people because they're going to tell you what they need and what they want to do their job.
0: Crazy, right? Such good yeah. advice. <laughs> it seems <laughs> so
1: logical, but it's like you know we have a really hard time doing that in bureaucracies.
0: I
2: guess the proof would be we had one team that was struggling uh, to work their queue. Things were getting backed up, and so they came to us and they're like, "We're having trouble," and we're like, "Okay, well, let's have a retro." And then that retro, uh, we solve. You know, we looked into it. What's happening? That identified problems, the team generated solutions, because they looked at us, they're like, okay, how do we fix it? And we're like, you tell us, (laughs) how do you fix it? You know, and so that led to a rechartering of the team and discovered some things that we didn't know were roadblocks that we cleared for them. So, you know, they, we remind them of their performance, they identify when it's time to take action to correct Mm -hmm. I so appreciate the callback to last
0: week's episode on (laughs) perspectives.
1: Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. So we've talked a lot about the rosiness of this and the fun and the successes. Along the way, did you ever have any moments where you thought about going back where you were like, this seems hard and messy. Let's just revert to V1 of teaming? Uh,
2: Probably during Alpha... They're in the pilot uh-huh. Uh huh. there. There was moments because it was chaos and, and honestly, I think some of the hardest parts of that was trying to manage the pilot team right. and their interaction with the rest of the team while we were trying to run two operating systems and they were just fighting each other like crazy. I wouldn't say that there wasn't a time when we started rolling this to the team that it, um, that we didn't want to go back. Cause I'm sure there was those moments, but honestly, We told the team what we're doing. We reorganized everything. And then a week into it, the team's like, well, when's it going to start? And we're like, it already is. It's happening. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's happening. You know, and so there's those moments of reminders. It's like, hey, you can make that decision. You don't have to ask me. And I'm like, this is when it's happening. It's these small moments of change that come. It's not all at once.
1: (laughs) Isn't it
0: funny how that happens where it's so common. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but like you're doing it and everybody's like, are we doing it? Did like, is yeah. anything like where, when does it begin? And because it doesn't have a plan or the pump and circumstance of like a big rollout, I think people are often feeling like they're just in the water, you know, they're just in the movement. So it is, it totally. is funny and, and uh, apropos that that was the reaction.
1: And just to like, give a little context for our listeners, because we do generally ask, if an organization wants to move in this direction, we do want to start small. We want to start with an experiment. We want to start with a pilot team. We want to start somewhere and not do a big reorg in keeping with principles of experimentation and of small moves over big moves and of giving freedom and learning by doing and all of that stuff. And to Doug's point, what that means for the pilot team is like their life does suck for a period of time. And similarly for the leadership team, because you have a foot into camps. And so um, I remember with your team, Doug, and, you know, with teams I'm working with right now for those people, those brave people who go first and create the defaults for new ways of working, but also have to keep things running in the old way is no joke. That's a tough... That's a tough time.
0: It is tough. It's very tough. Based on that micro experience within your team, I'm also curious about the macro experience of having this whole group work in this new way inside a broader system that isn't exactly on the same journey or maybe exactly in the same place. Has there been anything about that that has been hard or easy, interesting? Like, what's the What's the reality of doing this kind of change inside a bigger system that isn't on the same page?
2: I could see where it would be a struggle, um, especially if it was one part of project teams that had to work with another part of a project team or, you know, their little piece. I I think we were lucky in that support tends to be very self-contained. It's an island, Uh, yeah. It it is. It's an island and we send things by mail to other parts of the company and they send (laughs) it back to us, you know. (laughs) So, you know, we get those airdrops and, and it's fine. That's the way support works. So I would say... In a support organization, I think we actually had it easier than trying to do it for other small groups and trying to get them to work as they you know, constantly passed work back and forth without all the established ways of working with each other.
1: And while we're talking about ways of working, what are some of the most helpful practices that you've found to support teams? So earlier in the episode, you mentioned team chartering. You've mentioned retrospectives. We've talked about both of those things on the podcast. Are there any other things that you found to be particularly supportive in moving this direction?
2: So definitely the charters. Um, sometimes it's not easy to get the team to see the benefit at first, but, uh, but once they start doing it, they, they see it and they get it. And, uh, it's not long before they're asking, uh, to redo the charter to make changes, um, the retros come in handy. I think one thing we learned along the way is don't try to force uh, retrospectives and meetings if the team doesn't want one. <laughs> uh, we kind of had gotten in our mind that we need to do this periodically just because you should do it. And it's like, well, if you don't need to cleanse, then don't cleanse. Let it go. Because uh, you almost force them into doing something. And they're like, we don't want to do this. <laughs> okay. The The communication has been great. Um, we've really pushed hard to keep the teams sitting close to each other so they can talk and collaborate. Um, So enabling that has been amazing. Um, And I think the other thing is pushing them away from email. We used to send hundreds of emails to each other every day and I'm like, you're sitting one row from each other, just talk, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so that's become great. And then uh, using Teams because uh, Microsoft Teams, Slack, whatever, you know, medium you want to use, encouraging that continuous conversation in there so that no one's asking, you know, what was the announcement? What happened? They can just go find it. They can, they can pull it when they're ready for it.
1: Right. You're like de-siloing in all the ways you're like not siloing information in email, not siloing people physically by pushing them together. Like not, it's interesting that so much of the,
0: the walls come uh, down
1: practices are about, yeah. Blowing up walls. It's so cool. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it totally does. And especially in support. I mean, things change so quickly and so often. It's like, Mm -hmm. we have to get the communication out faster, but we had to kind of come to the point where the team decided, this is how we want to communicate. And that's it. (laughs) And, And we stuck with it and we pushed to it. And that's where we live now.
0: So as we kind of draw closer to a close, I think I want to go to the, the super practical question, which is, you know, if you could roll the clock back and you're back in the beginning, or if you're talking to another leader in your shoes who's about to go on this journey or or embark, you know, on, on this new way of working, what would be like the top three things that you think that they should either know or do that would help them be successful? So kind of giving giving advice to your former self.
2: I would say um, the first piece of advice I would give is do something faster. Don't try to plan, Mm -hmm. don't try to do as much. Come up with a rough idea, get your team engaged, and then start doing something faster and correct along the way. Yes. That would be my first piece. The second thing I would say would be, be prepared that you're going to have to have strong shoulders, because it's not going to be pretty, it's going to be messy, (laughs) there's going to be problems bumps along the way the numbers aren't going to be what your boss wants to see just wait give it time for the team to settle in um, they'll get happier and everything will line back up and you'll probably end up doing better than you ever had before right. and the last piece of advice uh that i would give would be to empower and to listen to your team that's what all of this is about i missed that along the way until we really started talking about doing this Mm -hmm. it's about empowering the team. It's about encouraging them and getting to the point where they can manage themselves. Once you do that, everything else kind of starts just falling into place. Yes. So don't be afraid to give them that power. Don't be afraid to give them the control. And don't forget, you can put in guardrails that limit them, you know, whether it's for legal compliance or HR compliance, whatever it is, you can put in those guardrails And the team's going to stay in them because they know the boundaries and it works.
0: (laughs) And it just works. It works.
1: (laughs) Doug, I think that is great advice. The one thing I would add based on my work with you that you might not even be fully aware of is you brought an energy to this whole notion and this transformation that it was possible. In a situation that it didn't always seem possible, and with a group of people who were probably hopeful but skeptical, I don't remember you and I ever having a conversation about any of the finer points of this movement where you were just like, we can't do that or we can't figure that out. Like every new problem that came up, you approached with optimism and also just a curiosity and a figure it out mindset. And I think a lot of leaders miss. How important energetically that is for a team to see when they're doing something that seems maybe foreign and maybe a little bit scary. So, I love the tips you gave. And uh, my tip is be like Doug.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Be like Doug. And on that note, I am going to draw things to a close. Um, Doug, thank you so much for joining us today and telling your story. Thank you. Rodney, we did it again,
1: it was a delight. (laughs)
0: <laughs> a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the booth. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready. We help organizations around the world eliminate bureaucracy and change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the If you like what you're hearing, give us a review. And this week, we want to try an experiment uh, with you. We want each of you to share a link uh, to the show with one colleague or friend and just see if we can double the size of this movement in seven days. So if you're willing, if you're open to it, if you like what you're hearing, drop a link to a friend and let's see what happens next week. We'll let you know. Um, Until next time, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.